Hi everyone, welcome to Season 2 of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast, where we interview Asian entrepreneurs and professionals around the world. And for this season, we're going to take our conversations deeper about our Asian identity and hustle stories. We also want to announce that we are hosting our first ever Asian Hustle Network Uplifted Conference next spring in Las Vegas. For more info and to reserve your seats, check out our website at asianhustlenetwork.com. Don't forget to grab a copy of our recently released book, Uplifted, Journeys of Abundance, Community, and Identity, which tells the personal stories of how 21 Asian American entrepreneurs are shifting culture. You can order it on our website as well. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us. Her name is May Lee. Born in Columbus, Ohio to Korean immigrant parents, May Lee is an award-winning broadcast journalist, host of The May Lee Show, adjunct professor at USC, and founder of Lotus Media House, who has been both a U.S.-based and international anchor, host, correspondent, and producer. Familiar with being the outsider, otherized by a predominantly white community, May was introduced to racism at a young age. This fueled her to become a prominent voice in the effort to combat anti-Asian hate that exploded due to COVID-19. At the start of 2020, May's production company, Lotus Media House, partnered with NextShark, the leading Asian online news source, to launch The May Lee Show. Each episode, May sits down with the most impactful and relevant Asians in the U.S. and around the world who are boldly enhancing and elevating Asian voices and issues. Recognized for her powerful voice for Asian Americans, May was named one of Forbes 50 over 50 women leading the way in impact in July 2021. May has been working with various organizations, companies, and media outlets to raise more awareness of AAPI history and experiences. May, welcome to the show. Thank you. So good to be here, you guys. May, I want to say, I said this before the podcast, already. it's such an honor to have you on the show today. You are a legend. You know, we're so happy to have you here. Well, thank you. I know. I don't know if I'm such a legend, but uh, I'm old. Maybe that means I'm old, but thank you. I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> Not at all. You're so humble. But yeah, I want to dive into your story. Like, tell us about your upbringing. What was it like growing up in Columbus, Ohio? And what led you down the path that you are today? Well, I was born in Columbus, Ohio, because my father was training to be a psychiatrist. And so he was getting one of his, I believe, neurological degrees at uh, the Ohio State University. Um, But then we actually moved back to Korea for a few years when I was really, really young. Um, But after a couple of years, we again moved back to the United States and we ended up in Dayton, Ohio. So that's where I actually grew up. Um, my upbringing, yeah, it was interesting. Um, I guess that's a good euphemism, uh, meaning that growing up in the 1970s in a very, very white environment, um, back then was challenging, you know, um, especially because people didn't know, you know, even what a Korean was, to be honest, right? Most people were familiar with maybe Chinese, maybe Japanese, but Korean, you know, kids would be like, where's that? Where are you from? Um, So I got the exposure 
to being otherized and being the perpetual foreigner and racist, you know, behavior from people pretty early on in my life. And I hate to say this, but it kind of, in hindsight, it prepared me for my career and my life journey uh, up to now because I was sort of really educated in a harsh way to the reality of racism and to the reality of division and, you know, sort of this idea of, you know, us and them. So, you know, when when COVID came around and xenophobia came around and anti-Asian hate came around, I knew what was coming and I really recognized what was happening. So, but that's kind of a brief background into my life in Ohio. Obviously I moved on um, and started my journalistic career later, which took me all over the world, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, thanks for sharing that experience. And I'm so sorry to hear that about the harsh experience growing up. Uh, I'm kind of, I really appreciate the mindset of, of just looking towards the positives. Like just, you know, most people look at that experience being, wow, like the world is such a messed up place, but you looked at it, looked at it at that experience and think about like, how can that prepare you for the future? You know? So I think that's well, Brian at the time. I mean, I have to say, I wish I was that wise as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I was going through it, it was hard. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I wanted to disappear. And I know a lot of Asian Americans feel the same way, even young people to this very day. When I talk to them, you still have this part of you that wants to fit in so badly that you want to be white or you don't want to be Asian. That's for sure. Right. I wanted to have blonde hair, blue eyes. I wanted to change my name to Mary because it sounded more American. You know, all of those feelings of feeling that you're not enough, right. That you don't belong. And so when you go through it, it's hard, it's painful. Um, and you know, it does leave scars, but it was in hindsight as I grew older and wiser that I knew, okay, all of that can be used for some good. But when I was going through it, it sucked. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thanks for sharing that experience with us. I feel yeah, like you said, I still feel like that still occurs today. Right. And that's a huge problem of like reputation. That's a huge problem of like, not seeing enough people that live like us on the news or like in movies and in mainstream media, it's, yeah. it's, it's definitely an issue. Yeah. I can also vouch for that too, because May, you mentioned you grew up in Columbus, Ohio, where it was predominantly white and Brian and I, we didn't grow up in the same city, but we grew up in very Asian cities. Brian grew up in LA. I grew up in San Francisco and I grew up in the sunset district of San Francisco, which is predominantly Asian. So a majority of my elementary, middle, high school, it was 80% Asian. But even then I still felt like I did want features that were on white women, you know, because Mm -hmm. I was pretty petite and I didn't like my petiteness. Right. And so I always looked on TV to see what was considered as beautiful, which was tall, skinny women. Yeah. Right. Because I never saw anyone who was Asian on television on screen. So I didn't really, really know like what was considered beautiful for Asian women. Right. right. And so the only thing that I saw on TV was white women who were considered beautiful. So it's like the only thing that I could reference to. 
Yeah, no. And, and that's the thing. It's like we're all so programmed from a very young age, even to this day, to a certain extent, where it's like whiteness or at least Anglo is the gold standard. Right. So that's what we should all sort of try to achieve. But like you, I'm really petite as well. So I grew up always being the shortest person in the class and shortest sort of person in the room. And so, of course, I'm going to think I'm less than if all we see are these images that are completely opposite from what we are and nothing is being reflected that like, you know, is, is similar to us and our features. And, you know, there's a saying, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Right. And that's something that really, I think has hurt a lot of us, but that's why what's happening now more engagement, more discussions like this, more awareness, media finally catching up to the fact that we need more diversity. We need to truly reflect the reality of the world rather than creating this fantasy land. That's going to help, I hope, the younger generations grow up with that now thinking, oh yeah, this is all totally acceptable and normal. Diversity is beautiful and we don't have one gold standard. Mm, I absolutely agree with that statement, right? It's diversity is beautiful. And I hope that we continue to progress down that path. You know, luckily for me, I I grew up without watching much TV, but I didn't watch a lot of news. I watched a oh, lot of news. <laughs> a news junkie and a history junkie growing up. And that's why having you in the show for your our listeners, it took me a while to be like, oh, starstruck with May, right? I'm like, oh my God, like I used to watch a lot of you on the news and CNN, all that stuff, right? So I'm so happy to have you here. Like, let's talk about your time working as a correspondent, right? Mm. I would imagine this is a different time period than what we're, what we're used to seeing. Like, I'm, I'm pretty, I want to hear some stories from you. Like, did you... Did you ever get advice from other news anchors that was was that was like a little bit weird? I was like, wow, like why did you ask me? Why did why did you ask me to talk a certain way or dress a certain way or act a certain way? Like, tell us about your your experiences. Yeah, you know, my journalistic career has been an interesting one because um, I didn't start off uh, thinking I was going to go into journalism and be on television because I, again, going back to the programming of when I was a kid grew up thinking that I had to do something really safe, right? Be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that, right? Because again, as an Asian, um, and from because of traditional Asian parents, they want something that's secure, right? They don't want you to stick out like a sore thumb or, you know, be the nail that has to be hammered down. So I thought I was going to be a doctor, you guys. Okay. I mean, I went through high school and part of college thinking I was going to be a doctor. Well, guess what? I sucked at math and science. And I, when I say suck, I mean, really, I sucked. I almost failed chemistry. I couldn't do math. So I was barking up the wrong tree. Uh, so finally, when I got to college, even though I had declared pre-med, which is such a joke, um, I had to really stop and ask myself, May, really, is this what you want to do or what do you really actually like doing? And that was writing. I like pu public speaking. I love the visual media. And so a voice, I literally heard a voice say, May, you need to be a broadcast journalist. And from that moment forward, I changed all my plans and pursued this career, which is what I've been doing for now 30 plus years, right? So it was kind of not a planned thing, but when I finally fell into it and discovered it, it was so bright 
that I knew that this was the path I needed to take. And so nothing stopped me. I was so driven. And I think it was, you know, that passion that I had for this field. And so I just got into internships during college and, and then an internships turned into a production, uh, a production assistant position in San Francisco. And then I got my first on-air job in a tiny little town called Redding, California. Um, and so I kind of made it work. It's not like I went and got proper training or read a bunch of books or went to workshops or anything like that. I do say that I was given a, a gift of speaking and this voice that my mother, when I was growing up, she hated because she thought it was way too deep for an Asian girl. And she wanted me to try to change it to be higher. But because I'm such a stubborn little girl, I was like, no, you know, and so I refused. So thank God, because I was blessed with this really sort of deep voice that really worked for, for my career. Um, but no, I mean, I have to say, because I was one of very few Asians, um, in the media at that time, I kind of had to fumble my way through and sort of, you know, kind of blaze the trail on my own. Um, most of the times it worked and some of the times it was, it didn't. And I had to, you know, rethink things, but it's been quite a journey so far, guys. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack right there already is this having that voice and taking the courage to straight off the conventional path. Right. And yeah, you have yeah. to understand, you have to understand from our parents, parents point of view too. It's like, they want to have a safe career because all their life is instability. Like there's wars, yeah. leaving your country, going to a new country. Their mind is like taking the risk, assimilation yeah, no. and being comfortable, exactly. you know, language. I mean, all cultural differences. And so I always try to tell younger people is like, you know, appreciate what your parents and your grandparents have mm -hmm. gone through. Um, and really try to ask them questions about their past and their history and their stories, because it's important. Yeah. Then you get a deeper dimension as to where you came from. And mm -hmm. then you really appreciate the sacrifices that your family made for you. Yeah. Uh, and I think and that's really important. And that's what we're trying to do with this podcast. You know, just capture people's stories because we, we look at you, May, and we look at you and we're like, wow, you must have some sort of, some sort of superpower that got you to this position, right? But at the end of the day that we want to uncover in this podcast is that we're all human and that we yeah. all grew to pass the same way. We're all lost and confused at one point. We find our momentum, we find our inner drive. And for particularly with you, it's like there's so much to unpack with, with your story, right? Because like... You, like, again, we said before, like you were in this space at a very early time, at a time where it's like, we don't, where diversity is not an, not an important issue or not an important thing to discuss. Like, man, like, I want to hear more stories about like some of the nuances that well, you face. I'll, you know, here, I'll tell you a story of how racism and, and you know, a sort of a big event affected my career uh, negatively. And that was at the very beginning of my career when I was trying to break in as a on-air reporter in local news, because that's what you have to do, right? So this was um, about 1989 into 1990. And so I was sending out resume tapes, right? Back then we had to still deal with tapes. Nothing was digitized yet. And so I put together a sizzle reel and I started sending them out to tiny little markets all over the country. Unfortunately, at that time, it was the height of Japan bashing. 
because Japan was selling all of their, you know, sort of economic economical cars here in the U.S. um, that were more fuel efficient. So everybody was buying Japanese cars rather than U.S. made cars. Uh, Japan was also buying up iconic properties like Rockefeller Center and Pebble Beach Golf Course, all these places that were really like American. Right. So there was a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment at the time. Well, I was trying to find an on-air job as a reporter at the same time. I sent out over 60 resume tapes across the country, and we're talking the tiniest little markets all over. And I did not get one single offer, callback, nothing, because they didn't want to hire an Asian, Asian face, right? I'm Korean American, but it didn't matter, right? It, it doesn't matter if I'm Korean, Japanese, Chinese, doesn't matter, right? They, they just thought, oh, Asian face, don't, don't want to hire her. So at that point, I was like, do I keep trying or is this just going to be a bust and I should just, you know, go and do something else? But finally, finally, probably number 67th tape or whatever, I get a call from a small station in Redding, California, And this guy, this news director, Calvin Hunter, I still remember his name. He gave me a break, gave me a chance. And that's how my career started on the air. Wow. I mean, that's that's an amazing story, right? And sometimes a lot of us give up too early and we kind of just stop there. But the fact that you kept going and someone gave you a chance and it's really heartbreaking to really hear this story too, because I still feel like this in part in some parts of it is a lot of it a lot of it still happens in today's world as well. Yeah, very much of it. No, you guys, as you know, uh, COVID and the xenophobia was yet is yet another event in history that has made Asians feel like our acceptance here is conditional, right? We're okay until something happens, right? So for me back then it was Japan bashing. So that was the excuse. Before that, you know, with Vincent Chin, that was another era where Japan was being bashed because of the cars, right? So that happened the first time. Before that, it was the Japanese incarceration during World War II. Before that, it was, you know, the Chinese exclusion. I mean, there's always been things in history where we were used as a scapegoat, right? And so, yes, Brian, it still does happen. And we've been, you know, witnessing it for the last two years now because of COVID and xenophobia. So we have to be very aware of the fact that these things still exist, but that awareness should then empower us, you know, to say, okay, enough is enough. We shouldn't stand by silently and take it anymore. We need to start speaking up and speaking out and working together, building solidarity, empowering each other, sharing our stories Right. And then building allyship so that this crap doesn't happen anymore. Right. We still have a ways to go, but the momentum this time around is so powerful versus, you know, historically what I've witnessed in my lifetime. And then obviously before this is a real I think this is a pivotal moment for for us and our community. Such a powerful, powerful story, Nate. And 
I love how you remember the name of the person who gave you a break, you know, and I think we need more of that. And we do remember those times and the names of people who actually help us out and support us. Right. Not because, you know, they're trying to raise diversity for the sake of raising diversity or not because of any other reason, but because, you know, they're hiring and bringing on people who are meant to do the job correctly. Right. Because we're qualified to do the job. Right. And I think that's what he saw in you, that you were the right person to do the job. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think like, I'm sure when you had first started your career, you know, in this field as, you know, and a correspondent as an anchor, I'm sure there was, you know, a time period where you didn't exactly know you wanted to raise more awareness for AAPI history and, you know, promote Asian representation. What I I do want to know, like, what was that turning point where you were like, you know, I do want to raise more awareness for AAPI community and I want to bring more representation for this entire community. I'm sure there was like a turning point for that. So I want to know what was that experience like and what was going through your mind at that time. I'm also curious too. I'm sorry, May. I'm also curious to to add on to Maggie's question as well. I know you went to school at Mills College in Oakland. Does growing to college in the Bay Area have an effect on your mindset of like about the AAPI community and like I know there's a lot there's a lot of frequent protests and like speech uh, speech events in the Bay Area during that time period like did that affect you helped you become the person that, that you are today? Yeah, so I'll start with that and I'll go back to what Maggie was asking as well. So when I went to Mills College in Oakland, California, that was the first time I have to say that I was in, I had culture shock because I had grown up in Ohio, right? Where there are hardly any Asians. Then I went to high school, a a boarding school in Connecticut, which was really white. Okay. (laughs) Then all of a sudden I go to college in, you know, the Bay area. And I was like, Oh my God, look at all these Asians, you know, and they're my peers. Right. So I had never been in that kind of environment before. So, you know, at 18, it was the first time I was really exposed to that. So I, I think that was probably an introduction to the AAPI experience for me, but even then it didn't, I didn't completely embrace it and absorb it. Because um, I think it just was such a wild, you know, sort of shock to me. But then going back to the career, I remember I went overseas for several years in Tokyo and Hong Kong, and then a little bit after that in Singapore. So I spent a total of 14 years in Asia as a correspondent and an anchor. And so that was a completely different Asian experience, right? So I was in Asia as an Asian American. So I was surrounded by people who looked like me, you know, who understood my background and my culture. Um, So I never sort of thought I needed to be an AAPI activist of any kind, right? Because it wasn't an issue there at all. That's why international Asians don't understand what's happening here, right? Overseas Asians are like, what is, what do you mean anti-Asian hate, right? But my activism, I think, really probably got sparked um, very, very heavily. Uh, yeah, at the start of COVID, um, because it just triggered or actually reawokened some of the trauma that I had gone through as a child, right? And as throughout my sort of adulthood, I dealt with racism as well. Um, and so that that recognition of what was going on. I knew I couldn't stay silent. And because I had the platform of being a journalist and a show, 
and the experience. And remember, this is what I tell everyone. I'm a woman in my 50s. I have lived the life of probably three people already combined. I'm at a stage of my life where I'm not afraid of pretty much anything. I'm also not someone who wants to, has to protect my reputation or is, you know, so sort of uh, reticent to kind of express, you know, exactly how I feel. So I feel like I, I felt like I was in a position to just be very open, very honest and very, be very bold in what I was saying. Um, and so that uh, I think the timing of what was happening was perfect in terms of aligning with where I am in my life. And so that kind of I think it just gave me an opening to just be just completely authentic and genuine and, you know, sometimes a little bit obnoxious about what we needed to do as a community um, to raise awareness and to light that fire under people's butts. All right. So did I answer both questions correctly? I, I, I'm, I'm like, did I go in a circle or, but yeah, that, that's kind of how, how I feel about my activism and how, how it all came about. I love it. I love it so much. You know, you, it, it's really inspiring because especially during, you know, what we've experienced this past pandemic, there was a lot that was going on. You know, a lot of people had spoken up, but I think also due to the stereotype that we hold on to, a lot of people were actually still silent about, yes. you know, the rising anti-Asian hate crimes. And I love that you're expressing that you're not afraid of anything, that we shouldn't have any fear of anything, that using your voice is more powerful than you think. Right. And we all have voices. We all can have the power to use our own voice. And yep. Brian and I, we often say that it's always better to say something when we see something rather than just just staying silent. Right. And I think a lot of people in the Asian community, it's very, very hard to grasp onto that and understand that because we're afraid to say something, especially like big corporations or even like smaller businesses. We're afraid to say something because we're afraid to say the wrong thing. Right. And then in turn, you know, get canceled or something like that. Right. And yeah. I think for a minute, like we all felt like that, like, should I say something, you know, or should I just stay silent? I want to know, like, from your perspective, were you ever in, in your early days of being in your career and, you know, these things had happened where you had to speak out publicly on these issues? Was there ever a time where you did feel scared or afraid? And if so, how did you overcome that? Right. Or if you can, you can, can you kind of give like some advice to someone who wants to say something and speak yeah. out, but they don't know how to, right. Cause I think Brian and I, we came across a lot of people during the pandemic who wanted to speak out. And they often said like, I don't know if I should, I don't know if I have the power to yes. or the platform to, but yeah. we always said, you know, even if you have like one follower or, you know, a very small community, the one thing that you say to that one follower, they can relay that information to their community and it becomes a domino or ripple effect. Right. right. But people don't understand that. And I kind of want to know, like, from your perspective, how could the community be more open and be less afraid to speak up if they are afraid in the first right. place? Well, I, let me first get this straight. I was a fearful child. 
right? I was one of those typical silent kids, never spoke up in class, was always afraid, didn't take any risks. And again, that was part of it was because of my surroundings and my environment and the way I was programmed to like not make any noise, don't make any waves, keep your head down. And of course, physically, I was very small all the time. Um, but I think that actually made me stronger over the course of many years because I was like, well, what I don't have physically, I'm going to use with my mind and my voice and, you know, all of these other things. But so how I got over my fears uh, really had a lot to do with um, just knowing that you have to believe in something strongly. You have to have conviction. Right. And conviction is sometimes very hard to find in people because people can be opportunistic or they're, again, too fearful. So they don't want to you know, embrace something and even if they believe in it. Um, so fear can be very negative. But also I'll say this fear can also be very helpful. Right. Fear can should be something that drives you to do something because you want to change it because you know you don't want to live in fear anymore right so right now because of all the xenophobia and the anti-asian hate i think a lot of us had fear but we also said okay this is bullshit we need to change this right so we use that fear to almost empower us to incite change so for the person who says i'm too afraid or i can't make a difference because i'm only one person no, I always, I always knock that down immediately. One person can make a difference just because you think you have no platform or no power, you know, no influence, like, you know, a social media influencer doesn't mean you can't make a difference by one thing you say to another person or a story that you share with a friend or helping somebody out who you think might need you know, a helpful like conversation. Right. So if we collectively all do something right for that one other person or that one community or whatever, can you imagine what kind of effect that has? Of course, that's going to make a difference. Right. But if we just sit there and say, I can't make a difference, so I'm not going to do anything. Well, we're not going to get very far at all. So I always encourage people to get rid of that notion of like, I'm only one person. I'm nobody. I can't make a difference. No. Yes, you can. You can make a difference. You're here on this earth. This is what I want everybody to know. You are here on this earth to do something right to make a difference. Don't don't be at the end of your life saying I didn't do shit. Right. I didn't do anything that was good do something right mm. and and it's easy to do that if you just try to embrace that idea of like i'm somebody i like i can make a difference i can say something i can do something yeah it's at the end of the day it's, it's very much about our own impersonal internal affirmation that we can be something and we can, and we can yeah. say something and, and do more right and i just think that it's just most of our life we're just told to like just be quiet or keep our head down or we're not gonna amount to anything you know the asian pressure it's like <laughs> yeah. Always yeah. Tell you, like yeah of Man. course of course no so i know much. and i know and i know that's really tough and i know it's you know asian parents particularly they show their love in a, a very different way than you know um a lot of western cultures do of course um they do a lot of this tough love because they love us right and they want us to be safe 
of course, any parent wants their children to be safe, no matter how old they are. My mother still calls me, you know, when she knows I had I've gone to an event or something at night and I'm having to drive home. She'll call me. Did you get home? OK. And I'm like, oh, my God. But it's you know, that's the way they are. Right. Or they always ask you, have you eaten? Right. That's the way Asians. Yeah. Or a basket of fruit or cut fruit on your table. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, But what I always advise to people who struggle, you know, with, with that kind of bicultural thing is, you know, it is a balancing act to a certain extent. Of course, we have filial piety. We respect our elders and we should because of what we said earlier. They've sacrificed so much for us. But at the same time, you also have to ask yourselves. What is it that you want to do with your life? Truly, right? Yes, you want to respect others, but you, at the end of the day, have to respect yourself and do what you are going to be fulfilled by and what drives you and what you know is right for you, right? Only ultimately you are going to know what's going to make you happy and what's going to fulfill you, what's going to bring you joy, Right. And that is where you have to stop and really ask yourself those questions without all this other external interference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that kind of leads us down the next question, too. I want I want to focus a little more on Lotus Media House. Right. I want to you know, you started this company back in August in 2005. Um, tell us more about that and what what you hope to accomplish with the company or what, what have you accomplished with the company as well? Yeah, actually, I started, I think, Lotus in 2007. Yeah, because it was in Singapore. So when I went to Singapore, I was uh, recruited by CNBC Asia to be their um, primetime anchor. And so went over there and uh, did the, you know, did the usual anchor work and it was business news. So it was a little on the dry side. Um, And so while I was there, though, this was a time when I saw a change going on with Asian women in Asia. It was very, very interesting. They were becoming much more empowered, uh, much more independent, successful, career oriented. They were putting off having, getting married and having families until later. So it was a real sea change that was taking place throughout Asia. So I thought to myself, wow, you know, wouldn't it be cool if there was a show that represented the new modern woman of Asia, kind of like an Oprah-esque sort of show for Asia. And so I decided to start a production company, Lotus Media House, to be able to do a show, which was the first iteration of the May Lee show, um, based out of Singapore. And so I left CNBC Asia, started this company uh, with nothing, um, total bootstrapping and created the show, which did finally get on the air in Asia. Um, it almost killed me. The project almost killed me. And I'm, I'm no joke because, you know, when you're starting a business and you're an entrepreneur, you have to wear many hats. Right. And I took on probably too much, um, on my own that I shouldn't have. And I think I was a little bit too ambitious with the show and the project. And so if I had to do it all over again, I would do it very, very differently. But that's what being an entrepreneur is. You have to experiment, you have to take the risk and you, you will fail. You know, there will be failures, but that's how you learn and you have to regroup and keep moving. So that was the start of Lotus Media House and I've had that company ever since. Yeah. 
Wow, that's amazing. I I love that you were, you know, so adamant on giving a platform for Asian women to just share their voices and share their stories. It really reminds me of what we kind of tried to accomplish with Asian Hustle Network as well, because when we had first started, we actually had a ratio between men and women from 70 to 30%. So 70% men and then 30% women. And I think it's just natural for, for men to be more outspoken, you know, like they're not afraid to, you know, tell their stories and, you know, speak about themselves. But for women, we really had to do a lot to actually have them share their stories and come out and, you know, help them amplify their voices. Right. Mm -hmm. And once we started doing that, it did kind of trend more towards 50, 50, Um, but it's just so important for us to create these spaces for women to share their stories, right? Otherwise it's very hard for us to kind of get out of our comfort zone and share our own stories and amplify our voices. So I love that you did that. I'm really glad you said that Maggie, because I've realized recently, um, especially with my students at USC, uh, that Asian American females, there is still a lot of stuff that, they are internalizing. Right. Right. And they're keeping to themselves and there's still, there's pain, there's identity, there's gender issues. Uh, and I really feel like, and it makes me sad actually, because I still see this women of color are still at the bottom of the totem pole. Okay. Let's, let's be honest. Right. They are, we are. And so we have to work harder. We have to, you know, uh, to kind of take a lot more shit. Um, I hope I can swear on this podcast, can I? Yes, you can. I kind of sworn a couple of times. Sorry about that. No um, yeah, but um, but you know, so there is still this barrier for women of color, and then Asian women definitely because of the stereotypes that still exist, right? The hypersexualization, the whole like idea that we're so delicate, we're silent, you know, or, or we're dragon ladies, you know, all of these stereotypes have la- that have lasted for decades and centuries. And so this is an issue that I really care about very deeply. And I'm glad that you are saying that more women are starting to speak up and, you know, kind of be a little bit more bold with the Asian Hustle Network. But this is something that I really want to encourage more Asian females to try to find find your courage because you have it. You know, you're stronger than you think you are. And you need to value yourself. You need to know what your worth is. Because once you realize your value and your worth, you're unstoppable. You know, Asian women are some of the strongest women around. Uh, Look at our moms. Look at our grandmothers, right? She tough as nails, man. So I want Asian women, especially younger Asian women, to know that, to really embrace that. Don't fall for the stupid ass stereotypes and fall into that trap. Um, we We need to speak up and really you know, kind of raise each other up as well, for sure. So, so you guys are doing a great job with that. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that. I mean, we have to give you a lot of credit too. You know, like, as, as you said before, you're like an idol that we look up to in terms of what we want to model ourselves after we listen to your podcast and everything. Um, so it's like a lot of credit to you too. I feel like you're, you don't give yourself enough credit me. Like you deserve all the credit in the world for no, the things that you've you done. Back- it's so sweet that you say that. And thank you. I, I, I should just accept that as the compliment and not be like, so like super modest, but thank you for saying that. But it makes me, I'll tell you something. I do this 
I d- I've never been in this business for the fame or the recognition, right? And I know some people do. That's okay. Okay. That's their thing. But I've never done it for my fame or my name recognition, you know, or my success. I've always done it because I care about telling stories and I want to give other people a voice. That's what a journalist is supposed to do. We're supposed to give a voice to the voiceless. We're supposed to talk about issues that should be talked about and people aren't aware of. And so for, and now I want to create this path for you guys, right? For the younger generation to take this journey, you know, and go way beyond what I, what I'm doing. And so if I have helped create that and allowed for a bigger opening, then hallelujah, then that makes me really, really happy. I love that. I mean, just you speaking on that topic of you telling stories and helping amplify other people's voices. I'm sure you've spoken to thousands, tens of thousands of people, you know, just telling these stories, opening them up, you know, giving them this platform to do though, to do so. I'm sure that you have changed as a person as well. You know, you, you know, giving these people the opportunity to tell their stories. It also, I'm sure it also makes you kind of look internally as well. Right. And find out more about your voice, find out more about, you know, how you're changing as a person. Um, so I'm curious to know, you know, uh, how have you changed? as a person over these you know years of being in the industry and telling these stories of these underrepresented people i'm sure you've learned a lot about yourself um tell us more about that and yeah. your journey yeah no i mean I, I will say this uh as a journalist the beauty of journalism is that it allows for some reason if you say you're a journalist people think that they have to talk to you <laughs> They open up their door to you and tell, tell you their story. So that is something that is pretty incredible. So that's obviously allowed me to go places and meet people and talk to people that the average person probably would never be able to be in touch with. So for me, you know, I mean, obviously I was like this young, hungry journalist in the beginning thinking I could like conquer the world. Right. So a little bit of like hubris and arrogance. Um, and then of course, when I, you know, started like really becoming very successful in this business. I was like, man, I can do anything. I'm so good. Right. And so I know looking back, I probably was pretty arrogant at times, you know, but what's humbling, what brings you down to earth real fast is when you do go out on some of these stories that are heart wrenching, these disasters. You know, I've covered everything from the Asian tsunami to earthquakes to rioting in Indonesia, 9-11 in New York. You know, the worst things that have happened in history, uh, in, in recent history. And that humbles you real fast um, because you understand pain and suffering and darkness um, through the eyes and experiences of other people. And so there's a level of humility that I've learned. Um, There's certainly a level of gratitude that I um, practice every day because, you know, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, right? We we learn these lessons sometimes in very, very difficult ways. Um, My father was... Uh, taken in 2011 um, by a 16-year-old driver. 
So he was killed in an instant. And so that's something that changed my life completely, of course. So it's really sometimes life's unexpected events and occurrences, regardless of what form they come in, that I hope people don't ignore. Um, and they use those, those experiences, whether they're negative or positive, to shape them to be a better person. And I now can say again, because I'm in my fifties, I'm definitely much more aware of these things, um, aware of the need to pay attention to even the smallest things that happen in life, because they're all meant to teach us something, right? They are. Uh, don't think that you're invincible. We aren't, none of us are invincible and we're all flawed, but as flawed human beings, it makes us more interesting because that means all of us have different experiences to share, right? And sharing those experiences will make us better people. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's why I'm glad that we're all doing what we're doing, right? By doing shows like this and doing the work that we're doing. Yeah, to be honest, it never really feels like work. Whenever we, we hear your story or other people's story, it never feels like work to us. We feel like we're on a yeah. mission to like continuously share people's story and our condolences for your father. I mean, it's really sad for us to hear. But again, you're such a positive person, right? You always look towards like, the positive things to teach you and make you a better person. And this is the part where I feel like we still don't talk about it enough. May, can you talk a little, a little bit more about your darkest times and how you dealt with those? Because I still feel like mental health is still not talked enough oh, in yeah. our in anything that we do, right? Yeah. And especially, we'll, we'll love to hear, like, how have you dealt with your darkest moments where you look yourself in the mirror, like, what am I doing, you know? Yeah. Because I feel like we all ask ourselves those questions, but it's not something you bring up in a conversation with a friend openly. Hey, man, I look yeah. at myself in the mirror today, and I, I ask myself, what, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> you know? I know, I know. Yeah. No, it's so true, and I'm really glad you brought up the whole issue of mental health because it, it, it is a crisis. I really do think it's the other pandemic that isn't talked about as much. Um, and certainly COVID um, probably exacerbated you know, mental health issues even more because of uh, the fear, the anxiety, the isolation and all of that. Well, for me, I mean, it was a good segue, Brian, because my darkest time was probably when my father was killed um, because it was so sudden and it was, you know, look, death is inevitable, as we all know. Um, but when something happens so suddenly and unexpectedly and then the person's gone, right? Um, that is a shock to the system that is in, really inexplicable. Um, and I hope nobody, you know, goes through it or a fewer people have to go through it. Um, so at that time, I really lost myself completely. Um, I was in a very dark hole and, uh, and I stayed there for a little while. Right. Um, but I, I will say that I knew I couldn't do that, you know, for a long period of time, because then my father's legacy, right, his life would be meaningless in some ways if I gave up. Right. Again, we're going back to the idea of our parents and grandparents making such sacrifices for us. So if I were to give up because he died and that then his life would have been less meaningful. Right. 
because his life was about raising his children and making his family, you know, comfortable and succeeding and all of that. So I knew that if I wanted to honor my father, I had to pick myself back up, crawl out of the black hole that I was in and move forward. And now I, I know that my father's death was something that affected me negatively in the beginning, but now I use it as a motivating factor. I use it to share, right, openly with people because I want people to know that there is light at the end of the tunnel, that even a death like that can be used for good. Something positive has to come out of that. All right. So now with mental health and what everyone is going through, listen, I hear you because there's still days when I feel like shit, you know, there's still days when I really don't want to do anything. I want to sit on the couch and just watch Netflix and just, just be mindless and not think about it because sometimes life seems really hard because guess what? It is. Okay. Let's not fool ourselves. Life is hard. Not always, but it is hard. There are challenges that are stand before us, you know, oftentimes, whether it be racism or school or family or relationships, whatever it might be. But I think what matters then is that you, I know everyone has the strength. You, you've got to find that inner strength in you. And if you can't find it, then you've got to ask for help. Do not be embarrassed don't think you have to do it by yourself. Talk to a friend, find a therapist, find somebody, just talk it over and get it out because we are so trained to internalize everything, right? And keep everything in. We can't do that. We can't do that. What, what's, what, what is the good in that, right? So start opening up and sharing in even the tiniest ways. And even that tiny opening can turn into a bigger one slowly. Right. So, yeah, I, I want people to really be aware of their mental health and know that there is help out there. Just, just, just find it in whatever source you can. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. May. I mean, it's especially in the Asian community. I think it's, you know, it's so hard for us to ask for help. You yeah. know? But once we do, once we do ask for help or find that inner strength within ourselves, everything changes, you know, and you, for you, you knew exactly what your father had wanted and what your father had wanted was for you to find your inner strength and turn your previous experiences into something positive for you in the future, That's right. you know, and I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to find that inner strength because for, for a lot of people, it's really hard for them to do that. You know, it's hard for them to ask for help. Um, just, you know, the, it, again, with the stereotypes in the Asian community, right? You know, we, we rarely ask for help. There's just, we're rooted in competition and, you know, but we're rooted in, you know, being divisive. And it, it's just, once we do ask for help though, and once we recognize that everything is easier when we support each other, it's so much easier. And when you admit it, when you open up, it's, it's, it, you're surprised by how many other people are like, yeah, me too. Right. I feel the same way too. Um, and so if we can just open up that door, then we're going to see that there's so many other people behind it and that then you can build a community in that way, in that shared experience. And man, how powerful is that, right? To mm -hmm. share in that experience and then to help each other 
and not feel so alone. And I think that's the problem. People feel like, oh, I'm the only one who feels this way. No, you're not. Don't be so arrogant. No, you're not. There's other people who feel exactly the same way. And you, you basically just stumble upon the mission of Asian Hustle Network. That is our goal. You know, yeah. like we awesome. foster community over a hundred thousand members already. And that's the goal. We want people to feel like they have somewhere that they can call home and that they can share their experience and belong to. Right. And I guess when, between me and Maggie, it's like when we first started communities, it's from a sense of loneliness, you know, for mm-hmm. a longest time, as you mentioned, it may, it may be arrogance, right? It's like, wow, like, I wonder if we're the only one that feels this way. And we keep asking ourselves that question until finally we put that theory into test, you know, create a community that allows people to share their stories and their life experiences. And it just blossom. Right. Yeah. And it's just the whole, whole thing that you touched upon is like, you just have to open up a little bit, just a little bit. And then yeah. you find that everybody is human. Like we all go, it's, we all grow through the same struggles and we want the same things, you know? But how inspirational that you two decided to just say, Oh, what the hell, let's give this a go and see, you know, if there are other people out there who feel the same way. So you took the step to do something about it and to create Asian hustle network. And now look where it is. So that's, you know, congratulations to you guys too. Thank for you. taking that bold step. We definitely appreciate that. And at first we weren't so sure about the word hustle, but we're like, or whatever, we're just going to roll with that. <laughs> you know? No, people. I like it. You know, I think, you know, hustle, we all hustle. What? Right. You're, we're always hustling for something. So I think it's good. I, I like it. So. Awesome. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you. And if my sign behind says always hustling, <laughs> you, guys, yeah. you guys can't see it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, well, May, I think we're coming up short on time a bit. So we'll go ahead and ask like the final two questions. I guess the, the question that we want to ask you is, do you have any advice, tips and advice for people that want to break into the, like the news industry, entertainment industry, and don't know how to get there? Just because like, as you mentioned, like, you were in this space and you're just, you know, navigating through it out without much help. Like how can you provide advice for people to help them navigate through this experience as well? Yeah. Well, first point I always bring up is if you want to go into this business, especially television, you know, journalism or entertainment, things like that, you have to ask yourself, is, is this really what, what you want to do? Like, how badly do you want to do this? And what, why are the reasons, you know, what are your reasons? If someone tells me, Oh, it's because I want to be on TV and be famous. I'm like, no wrong answer. Because what people don't understand, especially about journalism and broadcast journalism, it is tough, right? It's not that glamorous. Yes. They're, it's a little glamorous here and there, but most of the time it is challenging it's tough and it can be grueling. But if you love the idea of being, you know, adventurous and getting stories and, you know, meeting people and interviewing them and, you know, giving again, a platform to the voiceless, then yeah, then that's something that you should be doing. Um, So that's the first thing. Second thing is if you just decide to go into it, start really connecting with people in the business, right. And, you know, networking and meeting people who can possibly help you get in the door, um, get some experience. You know, I got an internship one summer in San Francisco and I had to apply to it. So I got accepted into it. But while I was there, 
I was being able to meet some of the reporters who were willing to take me under their wing. One of them was Sherry Hu, a Chinese American reporter, right? And so she was, you know, willing to help me, give me that extra advice. And so that gave me, you know, some momentum as well. So definitely it's about connections to a certain extent, but don't think, you know, you have to have these like deep connections who are just going to get you through the back door. You still have to do the work. Okay. You've got to do the work and you got to do it well. And you've got to prove yourself um, as, you know, um, able and willing to do the work. So, so those are the two pieces of advice I would, I would give anyone who was interested. Those are two amazing and really, really good advice. Thank you so much, May. Um, Where can our listeners find out more about you and the May Lee Show? and Lotus Media House online. Yeah, well, lotusmediahouse.com is my website for for the for the company. And then of course, my show is on YouTube and video form uh the Maylee show. And then of course, you can find the podcast form on all major podcast platforms. I'm very active on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, a little bit of TikTok, but God, TikTok's a weird, it's a weird platform. I still kind of don't get it. All I do is go on to watch all the animal videos, the funny like dog. Oh my God. I can just sit there and like scroll for like, not hours, but you know, several videos. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm, tr- I try to be as active as possible. Uh, I can't keep up with some of these like really super active social media influencers, but that's a whole different ball game. So amazing. Thank you so much, May. We will leave all of that in the show notes for this episode. It was amazing having you on our show today. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Oh my God. You're so welcome. And I'm so happy to be part of this. And you guys keep up the great work because you're doing an amazing thing. Awesome. Thank Thank you you so much for your time, May. I love your story a lot. Thank you. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.